Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When shorts were short only concerns itself with what was actually a very narrow window in football history when teams wore, well, short shorts. The podcast will only cover football from 1954, when Umbro made their first England kit with shorter shorts, a design that was widespread within English football by the mid-50s, to 1992, when short shorts were all but finished as Umbro's baggy shorts for Tottenham's new kit, ahead of the 91 FA Cup final, quickly caught on. I'm Daniel Ruiz-Tyson. This is when shorts were short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. My guest this week is former Ipswich Rangers and England captain Terry Butcher. This interview took 15 months to set up and I finally got to speak to Terry a few days into the new year. The reason I didn't give up on getting Terry on the show is directly connected to the focus for this episode. We're not actually discussing his entire and very successful club and international career, which took in three World Cups, one of only a few England players to appear in that many World Cups. Instead, I wanted to speak to Terry about the second half of the 1981-82 season because of one of the strangest injuries, really, one that was almost fatal that I've ever come across. In January 1982, Ipswich, again challenging for the league title, were at promotion chase in second division Luton in the fourth round of the FA Cup when Terry sustained a broken nose that would rapidly become one of the most curious and grim football injuries that you'll ever hear of. I was one of many boys up and down the country on the Sunday lunchtime watching the highlights on the big match and the injury was big news for weeks. However, I've spent 18 months looking for this match online and it seems to have been pulled. I can't think of any other big match revisited game that has disappeared from YouTube in the same way. I don't know if it's vanished because of how grim the injury was, because it was actually in the days and weeks after the match when the injury really took a dark turn. But the fact is, you can't find the game online. I've posted on many football forums, among them Ipswich sites, and the game just seems to have vanished. But I, for one, never forgot this strange injury. People tend to think about Terry Butcher's bloodied head, Stockholm 89. Granted, it was a far bigger game, World Cup qualification at stake, of course. But look, if we're talking Terry Butcher and blood, Stockholm has nothing on Luton 82. Somehow Terry comes through these dark weeks to feature in what was ultimately a second consecutive runners-up spot for Ipswich in the league and claims a late place in Ron Greenwood's 22-man England squad for that summer's World Cup in Spain, during which he establishes himself as England's dominant centre-half for the next eight years. Here's Terry Butcher. Let's just familiarise ourselves with where both the club are right now and you in terms of your development. First of all, you as a young centre-half, you're in the team partnering the similarly youthful Russell Osman. What kind of centre-half were you at that stage of your career and what was that partnership with Russell Osman like? Well, it was a great partnership. We'd come up through the youth team together uh, back in, when was it, um, 76 when I first joined the club, Russell was just there a bit earlier. But we, yeah, I was in the same team with Alan Brazil as well. So as three of us went on to become international players from that youth team. So it was pretty good. We'd, we'd formed a great partnership um, early on with the youth team and then through to the reserves and then ultimately first team. So we were sort of given the chance because of the injuries to Alan Hunter and Kevin Beattie. Um, in those days, obviously, the medical situation not as good as now. And because of their injuries, we got opportunities and we sort of took them. and. Um, yeah, we did form a, a very good partnership. You know, we roomed together. We did a lot of uh, stuff together. 
uh, on and off the pitch. Um, we had a great season the season before, 80-81, the best season in Ipswich Town's history. So, you know, we were sort of cemented together and went on from there. How did you guys differ from Hunter and Beattie uh, as a partnership? Was one of you more of a replacement for Hunter, who, from what I've read, didn't take any prisoners, and, and who was more of a, a Kevin Beattie? Well, nobody took any prisoners in those days. It was brutal. It was very tough. I mean, Alan Hunter, you know, a lot of people said, as you as just alluded to, that he was, he was um, uncompromising, very physical, which he was. But he was also very good on the ball. And for a big man, he had great skill and could pass the ball really well. And Kevin Beattie was, was my hero. He was, was my idol, really. Um, left-footed centre-back, quick, strong, big. Um, suffered a heck of a lot through injuries. That's obviously what curtailed his career. But he was, he was just immense. You know, we called him the monster. He was, he was nicknamed the beat. He was, oh, he was everything you wanted to be as a centre half and something I knew I could never emulate, but I wanted to be, you know, the best I could be because I was ultimately going to replace him as a left sided centre half. So the, the blend was good between me and Russell because it was, it was left foot and right foot, centre backs, good balance. Same with Hunter and Beattie. And I think when you follow, two players like that and you don't want to let them down their legacy and their history um, you've got to be really on the case you've got to really um, step up to the mark um, and if we fell below the bars and standards that, that they'd set then they gave us almighty rollickings and told us exactly what they thought so we were kept very much on our toes not by the coaches but by the players around us and by the players that we'd replaced so it was a dream to follow them but also a, a disappointment because it meant that their careers were virtually over. So, you know, that was a really, really sad part of the, of the game. But, you know, we had our careers ahead of us. We wanted, you know, we wanted to go to the very top, uh, which we did to a certain degree. But, you know, we wanted just to follow what they'd started, really. The team itself, 80-81, famously in the hunt for a treble, won the UEFA Cup. In 82 in the league, you'd again finish runners-up. But had the team peaked the year before? I think it had. There was, we, you know, we we suffered a bit from injuries as well. I obviously missed a fair chunk of the of the campaign. Um, one or two others missed it as well. It was something. I think. I think as well with the system that we played, with the sort of diamond uh, system in midfield with Eric Gates behind Paul Marin and Alan Brazil, that a lot of people had sort of cottoned on a little bit to how to what we were about um, and nullified us to a certain degree and. I think when you have a season that we had, 66 game season, which was, you know, unheard of, was unheard of today. They never get anywhere near that. But it was a, it was a, it was a real, not a slog, but it was quite tested you physically and mentally. So um, the next season, whilst we never really hit the heights that we did in the first season, it was still a, a good campaign. I mean, to finish second is, is some achievement as well for a, for a provincial club. But we finished second twice, two years running, and it, that's not nice. That's that's horrible, really, because we sort of felt, particularly in '81, we should have won the title, and '82, we were just that, you know, probably one or two players um, short of of, uh, of being better than the previous year. The focus of this interview is going to be the second half of the '81-'82 campaign. We're in the final months at Portman Road of the long Bobby Robson era. Were the team aware that Bobby Robson was the likely replacement for Ron Greenwood as England manager after the World Cup, and was the speculation over Bobby Robson's future affecting the team in any way? I think um, we went to Australia in 1980 and Bobby Robson took us and it was supposed to be a, a B international with Australia. June the 1st it was. Uh, Bobby took it and, and then all of a sudden Ron Green was sort of upgraded it to a full international. So that was, you know, me and Russell went with a few others. We obviously um, made our international debut as, as it did a few others in Australia. Um, so. You can't get much more remote, uh, remote than that. But we sort of felt that Bobby was going to be next in line um, as an ex-England international, as an ex-player. Of course, Bobby was, you know, very well respected in terms of his playing ability and also his, his coaching and managing ability. So he sort of looked at it and he sort of thought, well, who else is there? Is there? There weren't that many about. He's going to be a natural replacement. But it didn't affect the team because. We felt that, you know, what we had and what was coming through from the, from the youth team, we could really uh, establish ourselves as one of the top teams uh, in England. Whereas before we'd been getting into Europe, obviously the boys won the FA Cup in 78. 
and it was you know you know had a, had a decent run in Europe most seasons. So we we knew that we were improving all the time, and we wanted to, to continue to improve. And you know, with Bobby Bobby Ferguson, the, the coach, they kept us on our toes, like I said before, the other players did. So we felt we had something really powerful here. But obviously, with Bobby, when he did eventually go, it was it was obviously not great news for the club and for for a lot of the players. But you know, when England calls, you know, you you do your duty, you go and do your duty, and you you go and to an, to another challenge, another test, which it, which it is, uh, and you make sure you do a great job as Bobby did. But you know, at the time, it was it was very much us just get on with our jobs, um, let's do better than than the next year. But obviously, with myself in particular, I had 82. The start of 82 wasn't very good for me, and you know, I struggled after that to get back in and you know to get the sort of end of the season that I wanted. Before we come to the extraordinary events of the 23rd of January 1982, which is just simply one of the strangest injuries and most horrific injuries that I can remember, you're looking at the 82 World Cup. You're a young centre-half at that point. I think you've got three England caps going into that year. Who were your main rivals for a place in in the squad? Because there were still some very experienced centre-halves knocking around at that time. Yeah, well, obviously Russell was was um, was with me. I played for I played for England with Russell as well, I think just the once or maybe twice. But it was um, Phil Thompson, Dave Watson, ex Sunderland Man City player. He was already there and in, and in situ. Uh, I didn't really play much part of the qualifying games. I was in and out of the squad, so I, I would I never really thought much about the World Cup in '82. I never really ever. I had that as a target. It was very much to do with what Ipswich had done, get into Europe, you know, do the very best that we could and cup competitions as well as the, the league and play to win every game. So it was never one of my, one of my uh, ambitions to get to the World Cup. Obviously, you know, as a, as a, as a football professional, you, an Englishman, you want to, you want to get to that top, that top level. But I never really had any sort of focus on, on an 82 in Spain. So it was really a case of, you know, just getting on with your job, seeing what you could do and, and improve. That was the basic thing. But honestly, look, with Phil Thompson and Dave Watson in particular, and Russell as well, great players who gave their all for the country. So you know, when you have to have that competition, it makes you stronger yourself and obviously, you know, makes other people stronger because they can see what's coming through. So it's the FA Cup fourth round tie at Luton. Luton are having a terrific season in the second division. They'll go up as champions that season and Ipswich turn up. The game is on the big match, has been pulled for some reason. I don't know if it's because it was too gruesome. <laughs> I'm not sure why. You can't find it on YouTube anywhere. I've been on all the Ipswich forums. It's just mysterious because games do not get pulled from that era. The big match revisited, very popular show, but it's impossible to find Luton versus Ipswich 82. Obviously, with Terry Butcher in England, we're talking, we associate you with three World Cups, one of the few England players to, to play in three World Cups. We associate you with Stockholm 89, uh, you know, bandages covered in blood. But if we're talking blood, and I know that Stockholm is the bigger game, but if we're talking blood, January 82, and we're not being melodramatic here as listeners are about to hear, but when we say the blood that you shed in that game against Luton, came close to costing you your life. We're not exaggerating. Now, I read about the injury in your late 80s autobiography, Both Sides of the Border. I almost regretted reading it. I mean, the the detail was gruesome. Let's get to it, though. We're in the first half. You're marking Brian Steen, the Luton forward, in this game. Tell us what happens next. Well, before before that, I, I just passed the fitness test for the game. I had a very stiff neck. I was like 50-50 to play. And of course, you know, Bobby was the usual stuff when I went out there and, and ran about and I wasn't 100% fit. But he said to me, look, son, he says, do you want to play? And of course, if you ask a player that, you know, those days particularly, you say, of course I want to play. Okay, then you're playing. You know, the medical side were like a little bit iffy and they thought, well, you know, it's up to, you know, it's, it's not great. But before the game started, I passed a fitness test. So it was a tough place. It was a really hostile environment with Luton and Kenilworth Road. So we knew all about it. We knew what to expect. And, you know, we, we weren't disappointed. It was a, a very sort of intensely fought cup time. But I remember it was just about on the edge of our penalty area and Luton were attacking. The ball went through to little Brian Steen. And, you know, it's not as big as me. Not many players were as big as me. But he had his back to goal and he, he the ball came to him and it sort of popped up in front of him. He controlled it on his thigh. And as he controlled it on his thigh, it went up in the air and it went to my head height. So I've just leaned over him 
and just knocked the, the ball down to Johnny Walk, who was our midfield player just in front. So I thought, well, that's okay. And then as I headed the ball, Brian Steen tries an overhead kick, ambitious, 18 yards, but I never saw it coming. I end up heading the ball over his foot. His foot then comes and smashes me in the nose, and slightly to the right, my right-hand side of the nose. And I knew it was pretty painful because we heard of a crack or something like that. And I then knew that uh, I was in trouble. So, you know, then the blood came and everything else. But it looked nasty. <laughs> Certainly, from my point of view, it was very nasty. What was the Ipswich physio, uh, Tommy Eggleston, able, able to do for you at half time? Well, bless him, Tommy. He's a lovely guy. He's, he's passed away now, but he was a fantastic guy. He's good physio as well. Lovely, lovely person. And he, he came on and pinched the nose as you do and all that sort of thing. And I then went off. He sort of put something up, a little bit of padding up my nose, and I went back on and finished the first half. But as I was playing, it, you know, you can't, obviously, I've got a big nose as well, which you couldn't miss, with Brian Steen couldn't miss anyway. But it was one of those ones where I could feel the blood coming out of my nose, and, and it was then the case of getting to half time and then, you know, getting it seen to. So I came in at half time, up the tunnel and that sort of thing, and then I went straight into the Luton physio room. Um, and then the, the, all the physios and doctors were there. And then they, they really packed my nose tight you know, with bandages and that. So my nose was spread across my face. So I, I couldn't breathe through my nose. I could breathe through my mouth. But it, it stopped the bleeding, So which was, which was good. So no problems. Manager Gaffer says, are you OK? I said, yes, no problem. So I went out second half. And I remember Clive Thomas was the referee that day. And, I, and he kept looking at me because, because my nose now is so packed. It started to bleed again. The blood couldn't come through my down my nose and out. In fact, it went down the back of my nose into my throat. And I remember just choking and gagging on all this blood that was coming down. And I was I was spitting the blood out, but also swallowing a load as well. And it was it was the most awful sound. I was like retching and and all that sort of thing as well. I'm sorry about this. It's a bit graphic. So I hope no one's having their breakfast. But it was one of those ones where. I had to focus on the game, but I couldn't focus that much because I was just concerned about the blood that was coming down. So anyway, when Russell Osman, my playing partner on that, he was, he was, oh my God, he couldn't believe it. I think he was pretty white when he saw what was happening. And, <laughs> and in the end, he just said, look, for God's sake, go off. But we were, I think we were only one nil up at the time and, I, and it was uh, in the balance cup time. And the usual thing, you want to stay on, don't you? And I, I wanted to stay on and I wanted to, to finish the job and I wasn't bothered about my own health. I just thought, well, as any player would have done in, in that era, I'm sure, then just said, well, you know, let's get on with it and let's get to the final whistle and, and win the game. Clive Thomas came over and Russell came over. So in the end, luckily, we went 2-0 up and then we went 3-0 up. And that was it for me. I thought, well, I've done enough now. 3-0, that's it. The boys aren't going to surrender that lead. And I went off and I went off and then straight into the to the physio department again to have it, have it repacked because obviously a, a lot had come loose. So when you came off, you'd gone straight into the Luton physio room where, and this is where things start to get very strange. They they try every first aid trick in the book to, to stop the bleeding. Do, do you recall what this involved? No, I, I can't remember much about that because we won the game. Obviously, I knew we won the game and I just wanted to get back to Ipswich and celebrate and, and be with the boys and get back on the bus. I think when, in those days, it was, you know, you get back when, when you win together, you celebrate together and it was just great to see the players and I'm happy and all that sort of thing because we won a very difficult match. No, I, I can't remember a lot about the, the processes that I went through, but it was quite lengthy because when I came out and eventually packed up my nose again, and it was well packed this time, really was, and the bleeding had stopped. We then, I then went out um, into the dressing room. I don't think I had, I didn't have a shower. I quick change and got my gear on. Luckily, my father was at the game. And he was in um, with a friend, a good friend. They drove through and um, I was able to get a lift back with him. And then we went to McDonald's after because I was absolutely starving. And we went to McDonald's and my father actually went up to the counter after we got the food and asked for a knife and fork. Because that was one of the few times. At the first times that McDonald's had been around, it was the start of the McDonald's era sort of thing in, in, in East Anglia anyway. And uh, it was really funny. That sticks in my mind really strongly that he went and asked for a knife and fork. So, yeah, but we had the McDonald's and then, then I got home. We, we should add a, a detail that's missing from that McDonald's story is that at the time you were still in your Ipswich away kid. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a bit of a daze really at the end of the game. So, and having been sort of fussed on by all the medical staff. So, yeah, I had my Ipswich kit on and it was a bit bloody, but I do like a bit of blood. So, there we go. 
the hospital had confirmed that the nose was broken. Were they able to uh, stop the bleeding before they sent you home? Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, if, if I hadn't stopped bleeding, they would have kept me in, but it did stop. And then I was sent, I was sent home. But remember, in the press, there's no like internet in those days in terms of all the other outlets that you can see that report on things immediately. Um, it wasn't until the next morning that the, the newspapers had all said that I'd had uh, an operation, I'd had a transfusion, I'd had all kinds of things done to me, which, was, which wasn't true. I just had the nose packed up again. It stopped bleeding and I was, I was free to go. So yeah, it wasn't a problem. The next day, the Sunday, you're thinking the worst was over. I think you're out with your wife and uh, I think it's Russell Osman as well for lunch. Everything's fine. That night, though, it all starts yeah. to go terribly wrong. Well, yeah, was, I thought, well, I've, I've shed a bit of the red stuff. I'm going to put some red stuff back in. So me and Russell went to the, the centre spot, which is the, the restaurant uh, at Ipswich Town Football Club, Portman Road. And we went in there for Sunday lunch, nice roast lunch, bottle of wine or a couple of bottles of wine. And off we go. We celebrate the win. Um, my nose is still well packed and it's still twice, three times the size of what it is now, which is pretty big. Uh, Rita was when Rita drove back home. Rita was heavily, well, not heavily pregnant. I think she was about five months, four or five months pregnant with our first child as well. So it was a bit of a worry for her when she heard that, you know, I'd, I'd had a sort of broken nose. And luckily things were okay when I got home. And then, then we had the lunch, really nice lunch, long lunch, and then uh, went back home and, and then settled down for the night. And then um, that was when it, it all started uh, during the night. Still to come on when shorts were short. It was a difficult sort of time for us with the Falklands out there as well, because um, we, we had one eye on, on the football and one eye what, on what was happening down there. So it wasn't a, a sort of, it didn't make nice viewing, so it wasn't a particularly good time. But we were lucky because we were playing sport, we, had, we, we were playing football, it wasn't life and death, and um, it was a case of just getting on with your job and trying to give the troops down there something to cheer about if we, if we could win. Thank you for downloading When Shorts Were Short. You might be interested in supporting the show's Patreon page. Supporters will get each new episode early, as well as bonus episodes exclusive to patrons. Show your support for the podcast at patreon.com forward slash shorts were short your support for the podcast is appreciated if the shorts weren't short we don't talk about it you then travel in a taxi with a bowl to collect the blood by the time you get to the hospital the bowl is almost full the hospital keeps you in as you would when someone turns up in that state were they able to find out right away what the issue was? Well, no. Well, during the night, we went to, had a lovely lunch. Went to, went to sleep at night. I, I woke up in, in the night and I felt like, like you know, like a dam is going to burst. You know, just that pressure on my nose from from within, and I'm, I was really, this is this is not right at all. So then I I went into the toilet and it, like the dam burst. The the packing came out. It was a big surge of blood, and then that was when uh, Richa, you know, said to me, look. You've got to go to the hospital. You know, I, I can't stop that. So you, you need medical help. So that was when we went to the to the hospital in the taxi, and um, I had the bowl. I was holding this bowl. I remember, it was a green plastic bowl, and it was just blood coming out my nose and into it. So then we went to um, Anglesey Road Hospital, and then we uh, went into the A and E department, and I was seen by an Asian doctor. He was um, taking the details down and all this. I'm trying to speak, and blood's coming out my nose. And he said, he said, you've had a, you've had a transfusion or something like that. You, you've had something. And I said, no, no, I've not had a transfusion. He says, yes, you have. I, I, no, I haven't. I said, he said it, it was in the papers. So you've had it. I said, no, I haven't had it. Said, I should know if I had it or not. And then we had a bit of an argument because and I was getting angry and angry because we're wasting time here and I'm bleeding, you know, try and do something about it. So in the end, I was sent, I was taken to a ward, to a ward, to, taken to a room. And then it all sort of started from there because I never came out of hospital. I was kept in overnight and never came out for, uh, out of hospital for the next what, five weeks. The bleeding stops for a while, and then it uh, suddenly and rather violently starts again. Over the next eight days, you lose around nine pints of blood. It's it's an absolute horror story. You're then transferred to the London Hospital in Whitechapel for further treatment. Your nose is bleeding heavily for, for two or three hour stretches. Altogether, you lose 16 pints of blood, two stones in weight, 
doctors were continuing their tests. What, what did these tests involve? They obviously didn't know what was the cause of the bleeding. You had x-rays and, and they trying different, different things to do. I had one operation. They went in through my cheekbone, the left-hand side, and that didn't work. And then it got to the point where they were just, well, actually, one, at one stage, a nurse strapped an ice cube to my nose in the hope that some sort of, uh, you know, it'd be some sort of relief. But it was, it was just bizarre because nobody could, could work out. I mean, it was, a, you know, the, it was the, the London Hospital in Whitechapel, which is an ear, nose and throat specialist hospital. And then they, they couldn't work out what it was. So in the end, it was, it was just a case of it bleeding and then stopping and then bleeding and then stopping. And that was, you know, you'd have your meal in front of you in hospital and you'd bleed into it, you know, because it was just, it was just poor with blood. I mean, I like my food, so it was one of the worst things to have. So it was just a case. Of, you just didn't know when it was going to happen, when it was going to stop. And it was sometimes stopped for three hours, two hours. And other times it was stopped for about 10 minutes and then start again. So, yeah, I had a lot of units of blood. If you were to ask Sir Bobby Robson, he'd probably say I had about 30 units of blood. But Bobby does tend to over-exaggerate. Yeah, no, but it was just a bit of a blur with how many units of blood I had and how much blood I actually spilt. So it was a good hospital. I was I was very well treated. But it was it was something that sort of baffled all the all the medical staff. They eventually discover that a piece of bone had severed an artery and that your arteries were unusually large. They were sufficiently worried to tell your parents that unless they could halt the bleeding, there was a chance that you could die. Were you kept in the dark about this or did you know everything that was going on? Obviously, they never told me about that, but um, it was only later that I sort of found out that that was what they were sort of hinting and probably saying to my parents and to Rita, who was still pregnant and my mum is with her in in London uh, they're in a hotel together and coming every day to see me twice three times a day so it was it was pretty pretty bleak um, it didn't seem an end to it at all and, and it was very I say very worrying and I met Bobby Robson came to the hotel as well and, and he I think he, he came in and he was he was he was um, he was you know full of spirit good spirits trying to lift me and all that sort of thing and he, he went out completely white because he'd seen the, the condition I was in, you know, with a beard, um, lost a lot of weight, tubes everywhere and all this kind of thing, which, you know, as a manager and, and as a human being, you just don't want to see one of your what, friends and employees and someone that you know very well and have raised, you know, suffer so much or have so many problems. So it was it was difficult for people to come in. I didn't want visitors and all that sort of stuff. And it was great when, when Rita and my mum came along and, and, and helped out. But it was a pretty strange time. And sometimes you sort of thought, well, I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. Other times you thought, no, I'm not. And then it came to a stage where, whether I was hallucinating or whether I was dreaming, but I, I thought that I overheard the doctor say, look, he's going to have an operation. Um, he needs an operation. And um, I said to, to Rita and my mum, look, I think they're going to give me an operation. I think this, this might do it. I think they found out what, what the problem is. And they said, no, that's not the case at all. You know, we, we, they've never told us that. Uh, eventually, um, they, they spoke to the specialist, Dr. McKechnie. He said to, to the effect was, well, we've got, you know, we are going to operate and it, it might be sort of make or break. I don't, I'm not too sure. It was, it was a case then of, well, I had my mind completely set on this operation that it was going to, it was going to be the be all and end all. And uh, luckily for me, I had the operation. And even though it didn't stop afterwards, the, the bleeding was, was getting less and less. The surgeons had said that the only hope was to tie off the artery, but that that was very risky. That's what they did in the end with this operation, is it? Yeah, I've had I've got a lot of staples in my in my face. You know, whenever I go for X-rays or uh, MRIs, you know, I have to tell them that I've had this. These are the staples in my face to tie off the the blood vessels. It's, it's left a bit of a, you know, bit of debris in my face, but I'm pretty much used to that anyway, so it's not not a problem. But I, I just just tell you one story about the. I got a letter. I was, I was getting mail, which was lovely, from the supporters, fantastic and gifts and everything else. And I, you know, kept my spirits really high. But I got a letter from some faith healers. They sent me a handkerchief, and they said that we we read about your um, issue in the in the newspapers, and we feel that we can help you. Um, so they sent me this handkerchief and they said to put it on your nose at a certain time, something like about six o'clock in the evening. And at that time, we will gather together with our group and we will pray for you and pray for your, your health and safety and that you recover. And I thought, I'm not a believer in all that sort of stuff. But, I, you know, at that stage, 
anything will do as far as I was concerned if it helped. So I did. I put the handkerchief on my nose um, several times and it never bled after that. What about that? That is probably coincidence, but is it? You know, it was just amazing. And you know, it's amazing what um, what can happen and what does happen. For your recovery, you're given iron tablets. You're told to drink Guinness, which after five weeks <laughs> of uh, hospital tea, uh, you're very much welcome. How difficult was it for you to then recover your fitness and, and your strength? It was a nice boost having um, been told to have Guinness, which was very nice, one of my favourites. So that was very good. And I had this repulsive um, concoction as well, this tonic that they had, which was extract of spleen and liver and all that sort of thing, which was vile. But I sort of helped it with a, with a, with a pint of Guinness next to it. But it was difficult to recover because you'd been set back so far. But I'll tell you what, the best thing for me was when I actually went back to the football club and walked through the doors of Portman Road. That was a massive lift for me because that was my world. That was everything that I loved uh, and where I wanted to be. So to get back amongst the players, and uh, even though I couldn't join in with the first team training, I would you know, do the, the miles and plod around the pitch and do all the weights and everything else like that. So, But I had a real focus then to get back into the team and to get back playing again. And I'd been given a sort of lifeline with the operation and with the, with the treatment that I had. Um, and I thought, well, I'm going to make the, the most of it, this, especially this season, and, and get back to a level of fitness where I can get back into the team. But I still felt it was miles away, you know, a long way, way away. And it was, but, you know, it's amazing when you, you know, you've had a major setback, but you, you put it to the back of your mind and you refocus then on what you have to do next. You play a reserve match against Tottenham and their striker, Terry Gibson, backheads your nose. Uh road test that it starts bleeding again uh, you go back to hospital what does the specialist tell you well luckily the specialist told me that it was it was fine and it was another sort of incident similar to Brian Steen when the ball is low driven up to the striker and I've gone in front of him to try and head the ball and he's he's flipped his head back flicked the ball on and smashed my nose but it was the best thing that could have happened to me because I, I really had a lot of confidence after that because the bleeding stopped I uh, went to hospital got the got the okay got the all clear and I thought, well, you know, it's like when, obviously, later on in my career, I broke my leg. It's like your first tackle when you break a leg. And it's strong and you feel good. I'm not so sure about the opponent, but you feel good with a, with a tackle. And then you you know, yeah, I'm back. You know, it's not a problem now. Let's, let's get on with it. And my wife was in hospital. We just had the, uh, our son, Christopher. And it was, I went up there and I just said, told her what happened. And, you know, luckily, I said, we're fine. No problems at all. So... In the end, yes, everything turned out right. But wow, what what a road to recovery and what a journey it was. You're back in the Ipswich side uh, before the season's out. You finish runners-up again for the second consecutive season. Could you see Ipswich challenging again? Yes, I could. I, you know, it was, it was one of those um, things to get back in the team. It was it was great. But once you're back in the team, you know the strength of the team and you know the, you know, the players. And yeah, we you know we felt that we could improve. I mean. I know from, from my latter playing years, when you're champions, it's, it's, you know, the next year is very difficult to retain your trophy. And, and for us, that season, 80-81, was very difficult then to replicate that the next season. You know, to finish second in semi-finals of the League Cup, well, you know, wasn't too bad, but it wasn't what we wanted. So, you know, that sort of refuels your hunger, uh, makes you stronger and makes you want to win things the next season. So we had so much to look forward to. And as well, I'd, I'd got back in the England team as well. I'd played against Wales and Cardiff. But, you know, it was just a miraculous sort of comeback. Uh, played a few games for the first team, selected for the team. We won it at Ninian Park. Trevor Francis scored. Um, I then was in the England team, after, uh, England squad after that. Went up to Scotland and we won 1-0 at Hamden. Paul Mariner scored. I didn't play any other games for uh, England. Um, they, they played Iceland and played Finland. I was in the squads, but didn't play. And I, I thought then, well, I've done well to get where I am now. I've got in the back in England sort of set up. I'm in the frame for it, back in the Ipswich team as well. You know, next season's going to be a good one. And that was all I was looking forward to. And then, of course, you know, you've got the 82 World Cup coming up. There's a, a last-minute injury to Alvin Martin. Dave Watson, the veteran England defender, also doesn't make the final 22. Was it the injury to Alvin Martin, do you think, that opened the door for you to, to get in? Yeah, possibly. Like I said, I didn't do myself any harm in uh, in Cardiff and at Hamden. So uh, I've done all right. And obviously my form as well with Ipswich was, well, wasn't too bad, I didn't think, towards the end of the season. But at least I was back in the team. So I had a bit of a chance, but I was never expecting to get called up and 
and you know, in the tw- in the 22s it was then, and obviously to start the game against France, never ever expected that in a, in a million years. And with my son being born 7th of April, it was wow, what a six months that was. It was just. <laughs> It was it was a blur, but also you had your your, your debts, and then you had your heights when when I came back into the squad. So, yeah, it was um, with with the you know when someone has a misfortune sort of thing in football, you know you've got other people to come in and they've got to take their opportunity. So, whether it was Alvin's injury, I'm not too sure, but at least I did my bit when selected for England that we won the games. The first date of your '77 England caps came under Ron Greenwood. What was he like as England manager? Because he'd also come through a tough spell. England had just about made that 82 World Cup. Yeah, I was I was in the squad for that Hungary game at Wembley when Paul Mariner scored the winner, and that, that took us through. I mean, that was a roller coaster qualification group as well. Um, Norway and Switzerland defeats and all this sort of thing, and you know we sort of scraped through really more than anything else. But the euphoria that night of getting to the World Cup against Hungary uh, was great. It was one of those things that you put to the back of your mind thinking, well, the squad, you know, it will be announced um, next summer, May sometime, and then, you know, it's something to look forward to. But obviously I had other things on my mind. But Ron was a lovely guy. He was, um, the boys called him the Pope. He was he looked like the Pope, really, if he had a mitre on and a white hat. He was exactly like the Pope. But he was a lovely man. He was very knowledgeable on football, uh, very friendly, put his arm around you. He loved being with the lads. He let the lads to a certain degree because there were some very experienced players in that in that squad. You know, Terry McDermott's and Kevin Keegan's, Trevor Brookings, all these people, very very good quality international players. So he sort of let them get on with it um, to a certain degree, and it was a great camaraderie, great spirit amongst all the players. And I think I was one of the youngest ones for the squad, or in any squad that was picked prior to the World Cup. And it was just a real uh, pleasure being with this squad because you could learn so many things probably from Terry McDermott, a lot of things not to do, but, you know, I, it was just brilliant. It was just great. It, it was a different world for me from the squad at Ipswich, being with my with the first team at Ipswich. But, you you know, it was just a pleasure to be there. And he made it enjoyable. He, his, his training was good. The way he talked to you was good. The, the squad was as well. He was, he was different class. He really was. When Shorts Were Short has teamed up with Twitter's unofficial bookshop, Big Green Books, to offer listeners a chance to win football books relevant to our latest episode. And for this week's competition, Big Green Books are giving away a copy of an Ipswich Town book, 60 Seconds That Shaped the Blues by Peter Rogers, which features many moments that fall within the show's 1954-92 Short Shorts purview. This week's question is... Which of England's five games at the Spain 82 World Cup was Terry Butcher rested for? Was it A, Czechoslovakia, B, Kuwait, or C, West Germany? To enter, you need to DM your answer to Simon at Big Green Books. Please note the competition is only open to UK-based entrants. And on Saturday, the 5th of February at 3pm, when, as Simon says, the time when all football matches should start, the winner will be announced on Twitter. Simon will contact one lucky person from all the correct entries and the book will be sent out to the winner. And if there's some football book that you're after, so long as it's in print, Big Green Books can get hold of it. All you need to do is tweet Big Green Books and they'll sort it out for you. Much is made of the England squad of the noughties, the so-called golden generation. But if we look at uh, 82, for example, and you're one of the younger players in that squad, it's full of players, including yourself, who've won European trophies and, and numerous league titles. It's, uh, it's a ridiculously experienced and successful squad. Ron Greenwood finally makes a decision about who to go for in terms of Shilton or Clements. Shilton establishes himself as number one, finally. But uh, your biggest player, Kevin Keegan, uh, along with Trevor Brookin, uh, famously both are out for, for most of the tournament. With those two fit, does that England side reach the semi-finals at least? Because you'd gone from almost not qualifying for the World Cup to actually having a very good side in, the, you know, in a matter of six to nine months. Yeah. And we only conceded one goal in the five games and never lost. So you'd say with, with Brooking and Keegan in, yeah, I think that this, you know, that team would have undoubtedly, you know, pushed for semi-finals because 
it was a bizarre World Cup in terms of the now you have the round of 16, then you have the quarterfinals. But there was groups of three teams, and you played, you obviously played each other. It was it was ridiculous because you knew what you had to do in the last game to a certain degree. And you know, like Spain were already out of the competition, having lost to to uh, West Germany, and we had we'd already drawn against West Germany, so we knew that we had to beat uh, West Germany by probably two goals to nil and things like this. So, which was fine. You understand that that sort of situation, but. You know, then you went straight to the semi-finals. I, I still believe, and I, I firmly believe at the time, with, with Keegan fit, with Brooking fit, we would have gone all the way. I mean, I'm really all the way because it was, you know, great attacking ability, great scorers, great um, strong back four, and midfield as well was Im- was immense. You know, Hoddle, Wilkins, Robson, you know, some phenomenal players in there. It was a great squad, great balance, great characters, and a lot of a lot of those players were club captains as well at the time. So, you know, it's, it was. It was pretty good, allied with, with you know a few fresh legs and young legs like me, Kenny Sanson, Graham Ricks, these sort of players. So I thought it was a, a well-balanced squad, a very skillful squad, a winning squad. You know, in terms of the domestic trophies and European trophies. So yeah, we we, we I think we we would we should have done, but we definitely would have gone all the way. You mentioned there the group stage with three teams. That was the second group stage. There, there, there were two group stages, a bit like the 70s World Cups. And England, you'd had that brilliant 3-1 win over France in your opening game. But yourselves and Brazil, you both won your groups, but you were effectively penalised for winning your groups because you had teams like Italy, West Germany, Spain, uh, the hosts, and Argentina having a terrible first stage. So you ended up with these two very difficult yeah. groups, England, uh, with Spain and West Germany, Brazil with Italy and Argentina, France. Meanwhile, they get Austria and Northern Ireland. So y- you would have been better served by finishing second in your group. Yeah, but we didn't quite know that at the time. I would have thought so. It was it was um, the the first group stages, the initial group stages went very well for us. Won all three games, beat France, beat um, the Czech Republic as it was then. We beat them well, played some good stuff, and then beat Kuwait. So. But remember, at that time, there was the, the Falklands as well. The Falklands War was on. So um, having to play Spain, the hosts, in the last game, and, and they were obviously very sympathetic towards Argentina and, and the Falklands. So when we played West Germany, the Spanish support seemed to be more towards the, the Germans. And obviously, the fanatical support against us uh, in, the, in the final game against uh, Spain, against the hosts. It was a very hostile atmosphere. And... Rita had flown out with our with our son, you know, having been born in April. She, she was only twelve weeks old, Christopher. So she was out there. This was a case of not not so much the wags, but it was a case of organising the trip yourself. So us younger ones got the you know got the wives out, and, and Rita was was at the game. And you know it was I worried for her as well because it was you know it was very uh, hostile, very very loud, very it was it was awful after the game because we wanted to see them after the game before we went back to the hotel. It was a difficult sort of time for us with the Falklands out there as well, because you know, we we had one eye on on the football and one eye what and what was happening down there. So it wasn't a, a sort of we didn't make nice viewing. So it wasn't a particularly good time. But we were lucky because we were playing sport. We had we, we were playing football. It wasn't life and death, and um, it was a case of just getting on with your job and trying to give the troops down there something to cheer about if we if we could win. Your partnership with Phil Thompson was a real bonus from that campaign and Phil Thompson even though he'd been around for years was still only 28 he had five or six league titles already behind him with Liverpool it looked like it was going to be a partnership that would take England on to the 84 European Championships and possibly beyond that with Phil Thompson as I say still being surprisingly young for a player of his experience and Bobby Robson continues that it's Thompson and Butcher as the centre-half pairing in the early Bobby Robson games Phil Thompson gets uh, an injury, uh, I think, against Watford for Liverpool in December 82, and his, his career at the top is effectively over. Suddenly, you've only got 11 or 12 caps, but you are suddenly England's senior central defender. How did your role within the team change in that first year under under your old Ipswich manager? Well, well I have to say that Phil Thompson was, uh, I was room with him as well initially when I went there uh, in the England squad, and he was just fantastic. He was, he was, uh, he was a funny guy. He would tell you as it was. He loved his football. And if you did something wrong uh, on the pitch, he would have a right go at you, which is what you expected. But if you did something well, he would really praise you. So, you know, he gave it both ways, which is which is very fair. But he was a, he was a great footballer. Um, we weren't blessed with a lot of pace, but what we could do, Phil and I, was read the game pretty well, was we had to. 
Um, so, uh, he, you know, he was always there for me. And, and I think when you've got somebody with that experience, somebody of that caliber and quality beside you, you can't help but learn and can't help but play well because he lifts you uh, and you don't want to let him down. So I had remember I'd had people like Alan Hunter and, and, and obviously Russell as well, a good friend, and Kevin Beatty. I played alongside them and they, they're exactly the same. You know, you didn't want to let them down and they soon told you if you were doing well or not. So when you've got that quality of people, then, you know, you feel good in yourself um, and you want to be good. But And a lot of people used to say to me that, you know, well, you know, Bobby Robson's your ex-team uh, manager. You know, you know, he knows you very well. You know, you're, you're one of his favourites. You know, he's going to favour you. And I used to say, well, uh, you know, the only reason I'm in the England team, to be honest, is because I walk his dog and cut his grass. He used to say that and they used to shut them up. But it was, it was, you know, it wasn't like that. And I never felt it was like that. And I wouldn't be happy if it was like that. But, yeah, to be England's sort of number one sort of centre half was is nice. But I don't, I never actually saw myself as that. I knew that every player that plays for England has got to play well. Because if he doesn't play well, then with the press and with the fans and everything else, then, you know, you'd soon be out. I remember getting booed at Wembley when the team was were announced before the game. We used to be out there on the pitch when the teams were announced, and people, you know, number number six or number five, Terry Butcher, and I used to get booed. So I think there was a lot of Arsenal fans and Spurs fans, and other people in the stadium that wanted their centre half to be there instead of me. But that just only spurred me up and fired me up to, to to do better and to do the best that I possibly could. So yeah, it wasn't it wasn't favouritism. It was a case of like, you know, just getting on with it and doing your job. That 82 England team might be overlooked in terms of when it's compared to 86 and 90. I think there's a bit more interest in the 82 side now because it's the 40th anniversary of that World Cup. There's a new book out on Ron Greenwood. My own view is that that 82 team was perhaps stronger than 86. What, what, what's your view on that? Where, where do the three World Cup sides stand in order of strength, the, the, the three sides that you played in? Well, people would automatically say that you sort of you build upwards from 82 to 86 to 90 and the 90 team, you know, being at the top sort of thing. And there probably is the 90 team is at the top, but 82 ranks easily uh, level, if not more than, than 86, if not better. Um, I love being in that squad. You know, I think 86 was a little bit different. We just, I just got relegated with Ipswich in 86 and I was, I was going to move on and move club. So it was, I don't ever do things easy with England. There's always something that's going on, put it that way. So. There was that sort of problem as well, but just 82, I mean, it just felt so relaxed going into the into the tournament and going into the games because I wasn't expecting to play. I wasn't worried. I was just happy to be in the squad, immensely happy. And I just wanted to do my job as an England player and see what a World Cup was all about because you, you watch it on television. You, you know, they're all the greatest players in the world are generally there. And, you know, you want to be a part of that and pit your wits against top strikers, top strikers that you've never played against. You know, it's a real challenge. So, so really, it was just a just a case of you know getting on with it. But I mean, I just love the '82. You know, there's some, some bizarre things that happened in '82. I mean, we took over the hotels in Bilbao and 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 in Madrid, higher up in the mountains. And it was and it was. I remember the because we had the admiral kit in '82. You know, as a quite a, a favourite. Now it wasn't then for players. It wasn't then for fans. But I remember the 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 kit man ironing the numbers on the shorts of our kit on the night before the Spanish uh, before the French game in Bilbao now we went into the kit room and there he is he's ironing the numbers on the on the shorts and it, it was like because you know to nowadays it's ridiculous to even think about that but and then I remember at half time walking off in a really hot atmosphere and the pitch was the grass was so hot you could you know you felt it you touched it it was hot and I saw all these numbers strewn across the pitch and little bizarre things like that. It just and they, they had a screen at Bilbao, which was you never had a screen at a football club before, and it was just immense to see a screen. It didn't show the you know live action during the game. It just was showing things, and you go onto the pitch and you watch. You're just watching the screen prior to the match when you should be warming up and things like this. It's just little bizarre things, and the long throw from Stevie Copple when I flicked on and Brian Robson scored. You know these. I mean that's a great memory that one, but these things are just sensational things and at the time for me just a young kid really internationally a young kid in in the in the first division as it was then it meant so much and finally what are you doing back at Ipswich these days well I'm just watching them now I'm just a fan I finished my sort of coaching career at Ipswich with the under 23s helping Kieran Dyer which was brilliant last year Um, a new generation new wave has come in now with the club new owners everything else but I just go as a fan now and watch them play, um, which is nice. So it's gone full circle, really. I used to go and watch them when I was 
when I was small, and believe me, I was small one day, and, and take my, my, well, my, my dad used to help me with the milk crate that I used to stand on and watch behind the goals, um, back to Portman Road. So it's like really gone full circle. And I'm really pleased I finished off at Ipswich with the under-23s because it's always nice to finish where you started and, and complete the journey sort of thing. So, yeah, I'm just a, a fan now, but a fan desperate for them to do well. Thank you to Terry for his time. Thank you to Sally also at Ipswich for her patience at my many messages across those 15 months of chasing the interview. Don't forget to enter this episode's Big Green Books giveaway competition. Thank you, meanwhile, to listeners Gordon for his support and Jag for his contact via the Facebook page and suggestion for an episode idea. Thank you all for listening. The podcast can be followed on both Twitter and Instagram at Shorts Were Short and Facebook.com forward slash Shorts Were Short. If you want to join the group page, please do. If you want to drop the show an email, you can get me Shorts Were Short at 1607westegg.com. There is now a Discord channel too. Check out the Twitter and Facebook pages for the link or just search on Discord for When Shorts Were Short. Download the app to your phone or your PC, tablet or whatever device and join the community. All my work can be found at DanielRuizTyson.com. The podcast can be supported at Patreon.com forward slash Shorts Were Short. Sign up for your season ticket there. Lots of content on the way. Do please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It's still the biggest platform in podcasting. And without those ratings and reviews, a small indie show like this has no chance of reaching a wider audience. Support the podcast while it's still here. Thank you for your time. The artwork is by Tom Hadfield. The music is 80s synth pop by Toto Cyberspace. I've been Daniel Ruiz Tyson. This has been When Shorts Were Short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. Thank you.